Welcome. You are now listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Show with Roshan Lugani, Eric Olson, and Adrian Nicholson. This show is an exploration of ideas to help you work towards your ideal retirement. Roshan Lungani and Eric Olson are certified financial planner practitioners that serve clients across the U.S. They offer financial planning and investment advice through Arate Wealth Advisors, LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor, and securities through Arate Wealth Management, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC, and NFA. Get ready for the financial independence of your dreams. Welcome to the Retirement Lifestyle Show. This is Eric Olson, along with Roshan Lungani and Adrian Nicholson. This show is all about helping you define and then live the retirement that most fully aligns with your dreams and ambitions. Today's episode is a continuation of a session we began last week dealing with the election of 2020 here in the United States. And the question that we were addressing last week and are continuing this week has to do with the scenario of a full democratic sweep of the White House, Senate, and House of Representatives. The conversation last week and again this week deals with what that might look like, which areas of the markets and the economy might thrive, which might suffer, and what that might imply for ways in which you should consider positioning your portfolio. These two sessions were recorded at the same time. They were just so engaging for us as your hosts that we really went on too long and thought it would be unfair to ask you to listen to the whole thing in one setting. So that's why we broke it into two parts. So without further introduction, let's join the conversation with Roshan posing still another question about what to expect in a variety of sectors. I'll go to the next point with if he if he wins. The next potential area, this is more protective for your portfolio, is that volatility will likely go up because of concerns of increased tax and regulation. I mean, to me, that one, that seems to make a lot of sense, right? We talked about uncertainty leaving, leading to volatility in the market. And if, you're, if the tax uh, system is under question, not that there'd be an overhaul, but could we go back to where we were prior to the uh, cuts Trump put in there, both for corporate and for individual, that would be bad for the markets. And if there's increased regulation in general, right, that's usually not a good thing for the markets. So I can see that being a point added volatility. For yeah. those, th- what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm right there with you, Roshan. I think um, they're talking about raising the corporate tax to 28%. I believe there was also um, raising the tax on capital gains as well, which would be you know felt throughout. And also a lot of individual voters don't feel like they really were helped out by the big corporate tax or the ones on the wealthy as well. So those are all going to be very polarized issues for a lot of people. And also, this would bring out or non-predictability of it would bring a lot of volatility to market, which would be, which would play a big factor in it. 
Yeah, and Adrian, there are two points I think you touched on there that would lead to a decline in the markets, right? One, if corporate taxes, if corporate taxes go up, then corporate earnings go down and therefore the uh, earnings per share goes down, market value should go down. The other one, though, is uh, you mentioned on um, uh, the possibility of capital gains and income being treated the same, uh, I believe, and I don't want to misquote the misquote Biden's tax plan, but but I believe I've seen something to that effect. Do either of you know the details around that? No, no. I'll see. I'll see what what I can find uh, on on that while I bring up the uh, the next item on the list, which yeah. is more of a something to avoid. And they're saying that drug stock uh, could could take a hit if Biden if Biden wins, right? And the uh, the thought is the regulation, you know, on pricing of drug stocks. Well, that makes that makes a lot of sense to me, um, and it, you'd think that that would be fairly straightforward. One of the uh, so, but one of the interesting outcomes of the um, in, in the election, the Obama election, was that uh, a lot of the the health, the insurers at least did pretty well. So sometimes I guess it sort of depends on how they would intend to actually implement the policy, uh, because if they're if the policy approach they in, use is one which is mediated at all through the private sector, then it's one thing. On the other hand, if they say, no, we're essentially going to replace the private sector constituencies here with with strictly public sector um, actors, then I think it gets you know, then I think it gets to be precisely that outcome where the pharmaceutical companies as well as, you know, others could be, could be hurt pretty badly. Well, I mean, isn't that, um, uh, that seem that to me seems like, like that level of overhaul, is, is that something you think is actually possible? I don't know if we're saying to how, yeah, I guess it's partly a question of how fast. And yeah. then it's also a part, partly a question of, um, how, big a majority uh is that uh, would a full sweep of both houses of congress be able to muster in support of of getting kind of radical it is you know i think that there's a phenomenon that you see where once a party is put in place and it goes all one direction there it tends to be i, I my observation is is a little bit of an overconfidence on the part of <laughs> on the part of uh those people they say hey look we've got it now this is a this is a mandate to go all the way i think you can say this for example when george bush was elected and and uh he went pretty big on um trying to do social security reform and then uh after he tried pushing on that there was such a backlash that uh in 2006, if I recall correctly, the Democrats took the House and that kind of put a stop to that. And then in 2008, President Obama is elected and then he's like pushing really hard on Obamacare and they kind of snuck it through. And then in 2008, you see this or pardon me, 2010 at the midterms, you see this backlash against going that radical and um, and Republicans again uh, took. I can't remember if it was the house or if it was the uh, anyway one at least one of the houses so uh, and i think it was the house of uh, house of representatives so i'm sorry i don't have a i should have probably come prepared with reviewing all of the switches in the parties that took place at those times but my point is is that i think there's two things that are 
true. One is is that there's embol- this sense of being emboldened by a big majority, and but it's also I would say that embol- being emboldened is taken to extremes, and the American people often are not game for that level of um, radicalism, honestly. And maybe with uh, Democrats taking everything that that you know, sort of privatizing everything, I think is what you said in the in the drug space might be a possibility. But I was thinking more of uh, there's been talk of price controls, mm-hmm. right? So I don't, I don't, I mean, the whole, that extreme of, of, um, uh, and I, I said privatizing, but no, it was the opposite, right? Public, Trying to take public over everything. Public sizing. Public size, Yeah, whatever that is. I, yeah, I, that, that to me, um, I would be totally shocked if that, if that were to happen. I didn't even consider that till you, till you, uh, mentioned it. Uh, next sector, they're saying that big tech could take a hit with um, Biden pursuing antitrust cases uh, a little bit more aggressive. Trump has talked about similar things, but they the the thought is just would the Democrats be more aggressive with it? That seems like a little bit of a long shot to me, and. Um the reason I say that is if we're talking about a Biden administration, I, I believe that uh, while on the one hand, the antitrust impulse uh, throughout the decades has been stronger among the Democratic Party than uh, among members of the Republican Party. I would also say that for, for a variety of reasons, I believe that the big tech companies to me appear to be an anomaly to a certain extent. So, for example... If you watch the, at least on the rhetorical level, if you watch on the rhetorical level, what Democratic leadership has been saying to the various big tech companies, what you see is, is that, and and you, you can disagree with this guys. And I'd be happily, again, I'd be happy to be informed or sort of enlightened to see this differently, but it seems like which of the big tech companies is coming on, come under the sharpest criticism in your view. Well, I mean, recently, I think Twitter, when they started adding that fact check stuff to Trump's tweets, they've well, gotten a lot of press about uh, about that recently. Yeah. Well, that's certainly true. I'm asking about dem- among Democratic leadership as opposed to broad public commentary on it. Would you say that Democrats have been saying, Twitter, back off, don't fact check uh, Donald Trump's no, I think Facebook seems to be what I, I've seen most about. Right. And, and that's my view. Adrian, do you disagree with that? Uh, no, I'm right there. Facebook and Twitter, most of the social media companies that played a big role in the, well, not a big role, but were part of the election and a lot of the news outlets and the candidates using that as a certain platform to get the people to. Mm-hmm. And I think also the big thing that the, they're trying to promote is they just want more competition to have uh, more options too is a big thing, which could lower big tech's market share, but just having these small caps and being able to really promote competition and pricing is also, I think, an underlying factor in all of this. Yeah, and I with the Facebook piece, I would say, what has I would agree that Facebook has been the one subject to the most uh, pronounced criticism from Democratic Party leaders recently. And do you have a theory about why they've been under why Facebook in particular has come under such you know such a different set of well, I'll use the word attacks, has come under a much set of stronger set of attacks than some of the other platforms. 
Well, I guess it's more speculation. I guess they were kind of more on the forefront because I think the 2016 election was probably the biggest election when it came to social media use. Like I said, again, when it comes to candidates and we really hadn't that territory was pretty new, so to speak, when it comes to um, what information is validated, fact checking and all that stuff is now more important than ever going into it. So they'd be held to a higher standard, so to speak, for being on such like a new territory, if if that kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it does make sense. So I'm going to offer a different theory and you, you tell me if you agree or disagree with this. But I would say that the one um, tech company leader, at least among the, the social media platforms that and they, they are the I would say they're the dominant ones. I mean, the big the biggest companies right now on the S&P 500 are and I'm not sure it's quite in this order, but it's it's Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, uh, Google and Microsoft. So among those, the, I would say the one most vocal or at least resistant to policing speech has been Facebook. I'm not saying they've been entirely resistant to it, but I think they've been the most least resistant. Zuckerberg in his testimony before Congress in particular has said things that sound more like what I would call classic liberal views, which pri prioritized freedom of speech and freedom of expression, even if you disagreed with those views. And whereas if you look by contrast, Google has been demonetizing various uh, channels and has been um, has been blocking, especially on their YouTube, has been blocking certain viewers from seeing certain things or putting parental controls on what would otherwise be considered fairly innocent things that disagree with their overall political outlook. Look, Jack Dorsey on Twitter has also you know, been imposing more limitations on uh on some of you know who take a more conservative view than he and uh so but facebook has been more cautious about going that direction and so my perception in this and first of all do you do you share that perception or do you think that's just eric kind of misreading what's taking place in, well, in that conversation I don't think you're misreading it. You definitely can see the censorship kind of skyrocketing a little bit more now. What you can, cannot post, what companies um, align with and what they're allowing versus, you know, some areas that they uh, don't really touch on. So you, you definitely do see it now. And and it, and it's a fairly, I consider it a fairly new area that still is going to take a, a lot of time to really get everyone to hold hold hands and just agree on it, honestly. Mm -hmm. Roshan, do you have a different view of that? Well, no, I, I agree with what you said, but I also wonder, um, the dem are the demographics of Facebook more along the lines of the voters as well? And I have no data to back this up, but I just hear like from my uh, niece and nephew that like Facebook are for, is for older people now, uh -huh. right? So, so they'll be on, uh, uh, they'll be on like Snapchat and Instagram more and Instagram is owned by Facebook, but uh, I wonder if that's why face. I wonder if it's not just um, their lack of policing. Are they also speaking to the demographic that these politicians are looking for more than other other sources? And that's mm -hmm. a question. That's not an answer to your question. It's just another possible reason. 
Well, I, my so so I guess to come to my bottom line, uh, back to the antitrust thing, and maybe you want to address another point in the article that you've been looking at. But I would say, uh, in this instance, despite my agreement that generally Democrats have been more dedicated to the principle of of trust busting, in this instance, my perception is is that as long as these social media platforms, in particular, are willing to regulate, I'll use that word, regulate users selectively, uh, in, and, uh, and in that sense, at least, uh, quiet or, or suppress some of the voices of those that, um, disagree with the outlook of the Democratic Party leadership. They, the, the, sort of, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. The Democrats are going to be reluctant to, to follow their usual antitrust impulse and instead will allow these big tech companies to keep going because they're allies and in a very important way. But if Facebook continues to maintain this, uh, this stance, and I'm not going to say, uh, it doesn't look to me like it's a pro free speech span- stance, but it's at least somewhat more directionally that than is true for some of the other tech companies. Then I think they might come under increased scrutiny and regulation just as a, to, um, just as a, you know, a signal. If, if you cross us, this is what happens to you. Yeah. Well, yeah I'm, go ahead, sure. Roshan. Well, there are a couple other things. One is uh, a note that, um, the thought is with antitrust uh, cases, they're going to go after companies that don't pay as much as they feel they should in taxes. And Facebook and Amazon are the biggest offenders on the list. Mm-hmm. The other, the other thing uh, also is just social media's top used sites in the United States. Number one is Facebook. Number two is Instagram. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you could be right about the free speech thing. You could also be like a conspiracy theorists about it. And it could just be that's where more people go. Mm-hmm. And if the tax thing is truly an issue, I mean, I don't know what to believe here. So I'm not saying you're you're right or wrong on it, but it could be like the chart we started to discuss about are the markets going up because Biden's taking a lead in the polls. It could t- you, your assessment on free speech could totally be um uh, could could not be, have any causality, uh, you know, with the Facebook thing could be purely coincidental. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how to answer that. I'm not above believing that there are people in the back room that just don't like Facebook and want to go after them. But I'm also not uh, above believing that, you know, they're the biggest site. So and they they need to pay more in taxes, according to the Democrats. So let's go get them. Right? I, I don't Well, that could be I could go for either. Well, um, do you have more points in that article? If if you do, we could keep going with that. And, and maybe a, a way to go here is to make this part one of part, you know, two or a two or three part conversation. Um, or, you know, what's what's left? What other points do you think are important to cover in that uh, article? I, I, you know, I've only pulled out a couple, two more points, and I, I think splitting it up is good because I want to I want you to share your historical uh, perspectives as well on this. Mm-hmm. So maybe we can do that, do that, uh, do that next time. But the two other uh, points that come up, one is that higher minimum wage and new laws to organize the workplace would hurt companies like McDonald's and Uber. That I absolutely do agree with. Um, although let me restate, I agree with the Uber one. I, I somewhat less agree with, um, McDonald's per se. And, and I'll explain why. But Adrian, do you want to weigh in on that? As um, far as the minimum wage, I think the bottom line 
there or the best outcome for this is raise the minimum wage, you'll see more spending far as consumer spending in the economy, which will help it. I see that point. But from the business standpoint as well, it's more um, overhead costs. I mean, as an investor, if McDonald's has to all of a sudden pay all their employees twice as much, they're going to earn less. Their mar- their stock value mm-hmm. would go down, right? Exactly. So, yeah, I, I de- and Uber, I mean, they've been fighting... Uh, in the courts for the over this for years, right? Are they employees? Are they contractors? So on and so forth. Could, could be a major impact for them, right? So th- this is you know this is um, I think it's di- it treats different businesses are going to be affected differentially by this, even if we we see them superficially as part of all the same uh, all part of the same sector. So for example, if you say, well. Let's start with let's start with McDonald's. If you say McDonald's is a fast food uh, in the fast food sector, then would not all you know walk in or take out or fast food restaurants be affected equally? I would say, I think in the case of some of these players, their ability to to pivot even more toward uh, automating and the use of technology to automate many aspects of the process that previously were relying rel- uh, entirely on relatively lower wage workers you know they can they can do that so for example if you walk in have, have you walked in let's see, since we're using mcdonald's have you walked into a mcdonald's and used one of those kiosks to order your meal yeah, yeah so have i and so there's there's le- there are fewer people at the counters i don't know about you but when i was i you know i can remember a day when you'd walk into the counter and there'd be five or six people lined up at five or six registers now i walk into a mcdonald's there's usually at most one or two registers at least the ones that are the more modern designs there's at least three kiosks and you know they're they're uh, transacting much more that way with fewer people. On top of that, I think you're also seeing once upon a time, you know, you pick up a beverage cup and you'd have to take it over and you, you know, the worker would have to stand there and hold it, first scoop the ice, then stick it in the thing and hold it there until it was filled, then try to top it off, top it off, top it off, then put a lid on, blah, 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 blah. Now, have you seen those machines that are up by the drive through where basically, the, yeah, they might scoop a little ice in there, but after that, the machine takes over and, and they're doing, they're on to doing something else. It w- I would say that if they can pivot to using, this might just push them more in the direction of using less and less labor. The interesting, I think for some smaller shops, that's just harder to do. They don't have the the ability to develop a technology that will work for their setting uniquely and then replicate that and amortize that cost of development over literally hundreds and maybe you know thousands and tens of thousands of locations. Instead, they're dealing with maybe one or two or three locations. Do you are have you are you familiar at all with the research that was done on the city of Seattle when they implemented their fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage? I've heard of it, but I'm not too familiar with it. Roshan, have you yeah. looked at that at all? I have not. Well, so I might not. I haven't reviewed this recently, but my recollection is is that two things ha- happened. So one, of course, was that the people who retain their jobs did enjoy an, an uptick in their um, hourly wage. But the second phenomenon was that there was also some reduction in the number of hours that they were, that they were awarded those that retain their jobs. Um, so that it wasn't, it wasn't commensurate. The, the increase in their own uh, gross and take home income was not commensurate with 
in percentage terms, the increase in the minimum minimum wage. But if you look at it on the terms of the entire city and the demographic of uh, or the, the the that fraction of the population that was working in these minimum wage jobs, their total income as you know aggregating all of those people because of the job losses those people were taking home in aggregate both gross and net less money than they had been taking before the transition to the higher minimum wage so while uh, you know you can point to individual workers in that setting and maybe this would be different at a global level but you could point to individual workers in that setting that were helped you can say as a as an entire uh, subset of the working population that was a net harm to them and um and you know just heightening the difficulty for what i would characterize to be an already an already vulnerable population so um do, do you now having my, my having said that do you recall any reports along the similar lines or is, is did you never have you never heard that before because maybe i'm not re- remembering it precisely correctly no, well, the one thing I I did see, and I'm actually looking uh, at that right now. It re- it, it says the Seattle uh, case is inconclusive. For economists, uh, have no consensus is actually how exactly how they say it hmm. as to okay. whether and business mixed results for for businesses. I mean, I don't. Um, I'm going to bring us back to the the uh, the sort of the sector and the space with the mm-hmm. McDonald's and and Uber. Uh, just because uh, I feel like there is a lot in there that you said. The first is is uh, they're already shifting to less employees in mm-hmm. general, right? You're saying with the kiosks, with the machines, you need less people in there. And McDonald's has, has essentially started to do that anyway. And maybe this is partly in preparation for this. But the other the other point, though, wouldn't you agree that? Uh, I, I keep going to McDonald's because Uber's just got so much more with uh, the legal issues involved there. Mm-hmm. But if it's as simple as an increased minimum wage, uh, how does the McDonald's stock not take a hit? Like, would, wouldn't there just be lower profits than if you have an increased minimum wage, which would then cause a lower stock price? At a very straightforward analysis, I would agree with you. But I wonder if what it does is, is it prompts... Uh, a company like a McDonald's to make an even more accelerated shift away from labor and more a higher, you know, the mix of labor and technology to produce what they produce would shift more in favor of technology. And as a result, it's just, you know, while the initial investment in that additional technology certainly is going to reduce earnings. Um, long run, it probably helps earnings. And particularly if I'm an investor and I'm thinking, which of the companies out there can respond most nimbly to this increase in a minimum wage, what I'm going to do is I'm going to look for those companies that I think can make the shift as opposed to those companies that can't and are, are so it's a, it's a unidirectional impact on them, which is lower earnings and, and probably permanently so. Okay. Well, so you can see McDonald's adapting to it. And, and what you just described is what, what I, I think is just what's so great about capitalism or even just humans in general, right? They'll figure out a way. If you're going to raise a minimum wage, they'll figure out a way to try to be as profitable. And you've got to determine if McDonald's is the company you think will figure it out or someone else, which goes back to another uh, way that 
investors will look at is just management, right? Buffett's always talking about how much he loves management of certain companies, or he has said stuff like, I want a company that could be run by a ham sandwich. So it's just so, so efficient on its own that you don't necessarily need that. So this may be the opposite of the ham sandwich analogy, but, uh, but the point is that if you think that company can figure a way out, maybe this minimum wage things would cause the stock to go down initially. And there's your buying opportunity. Mm-hmm. And because you think they'll, they'll work their way through it. I've got one last point uh, on this uh, mm-hmm. that I want to go over with you. And this is saying that uh, I saved it for last because I'm not as much of a believer in it. So I'll get, get both of your thoughts, but criticism of for-profit colleges and the possibility of debt forgiveness would hurt uh, servicers, right? So, uh, but I just don't think debt forgiveness is going to happen. That's why I saved it. Saved it for last. Uh, I don't think this the college debt will be forgiven. So I don't know how how much this point actually applies. What are what are your thoughts? Would you would you put your money on college debt forgiveness going through? I probably want to put my money on it, but that was one of one of the biggest topics honestly before the pandemic was the student loan crisis and it still is and it's going to be one of like the more it's going to be a bigger issue as the years go on and look depending on what type of strategies or policies are put going to be put in place it's going to be a big uh decision what about what do you think eric well let me if you don't mind let me jump in before eric sure i saw the same things that you did adrian but i i feel like that was more Warren and um, Bernie Sanders advocating for that, and less Biden. But uh, I could be I could be wrong, which is part of the reason I don't I don't think it's as as possible, uh, or that that's really going to be something that comes out of Biden winning. Uh, now, Eric, I'll pass it on to you with even more to, to think about or to talk about. <laughs> well, so good point, and so I I think uh, one lesson here is is that it's. It's probably useful to watch what's unfolding with the development of the Biden campaign's platform coming into the the Democratic convention. And, and then, of course, what the platform is coming out. I wouldn't be surprised if debt forgiveness makes it. And I here's uh, and it, here's why I say that um, if you look at the various people that Joe Biden has been vetting for vice president, I I'm hard pressed to think of any that have a reputation. Again, reality and reputation are not always the same, but I'm hard pressed to think of any who have a reputation for being more moderate than he. And by the way, I don't think Joe Biden is that much a moderate. I think it's sort of like that's sort of like the, it's the dressing to? around it. I don't think he is that. Yeah. I think actually during his course in the, his years in the Senate, with the possible exception of the 1994 uh, crime bill, he was um he has been consistently more on the progressive end of his colleagues in the senate than you know he leads leads us to believe today but having said that can you think of any of the candidates that he's been talking or the names that have been bantied about as possible running mates for him that seem to you to be more in the direction of the moderate wing or does it seem like they tend to be more in, in trending toward the progressive wing of the democratic party i Guess I don't. I've read a lot about who the who's on this list. I think they're actually more progressive than Biden's holding himself out to be, as you said. Mm-hmm. But so, I, so I guess I wouldn't say they're more moderate. But but I haven't really heard much about the extremes. Uh, just thinking about the people running in the primaries that were 
that were going to try to get rid of college that I just, I, I don't know that that was the vice president, plat, the platforms for the people he's vetting right now. Well, so I, I agree with that. What I, what I would, I will let me restate that. I don't disagree with what you've just said, but I would also say that the simple fact that he's pursuing or at least courting, or at least, at least, you know, he keeps pot floating these trial balloons about, well, maybe this person and maybe this person, maybe this person. Uh, it, I, I think it's done in part to try to solidify his his base with those that were formerly s- supporting people who were more closely identified with the progressive wing of his party. So, f- you know, for you had a large contingent of people that were originally at least for Bernie Sanders. And, um, and some of those, I mean, some of those have talked about defecting, you know, and saying if the, if the, you know, we're going to take our, we're going to take our marbles and we're going to go home if you won't, you know, play uh, the way that we want to play. So I'm using the sort of discussion of the selection of a running mate in, in, as a sign or as a signal of two sorts of things. Number one is that they're, they are going to have to make um, policy concessions to the more progressive um, element of that party. And I think among the progressive element, the student loan forgiveness would be a huge win. And if they could throw that out there as something that they were going to do, they'd solidify a lot of young voters. They'd mobilize a lot of young voters who have a lot of student debt and they would solidify their, their standing with the progressive uh, members of the party. On top of that, I do think that it, I don't want to, I don't, you know, I don't think we're t- looking at Joe Biden as senile. But I, but I think, can we all agree that Joe Biden isn't as sharp today as he was even four years ago or, you know, or let alone eight years ago? So it, it, I, my concern is, is that there is to a certain extent, he's sort of pre-planning. I, I think he's even said something to the effect that uh, he's, and I don't quote me on this, but I think he's even indicated that he's not intending to run for a second term. What he's attempting to do is to wrest the White House away from of the Republicans and Donald Trump in particular, and then create the platform for a successor down the road. So depending on who that candidate, uh, the his running mate becomes, I think that too will signal what to expect, not only on the party platform, but it also might signal what sorts of pressures he'd be facing day to day in conversations with his vice president uh, about this or that policy move, as well as if, God forbid, the president dies in office. Uh, you know, I don't want that. I don't want any of our elected officials to die in office or become in, incapable of serving. But if that were to happen, I'd say that's probabilistically more likely among really old candidates than about among much younger ones. And, uh, you know, it's not it's not beyond conception that a vice president could take over for him during his first term. And so then in that case, you know, I think investors today need to be thinking about that question, even if that might not be until two or three years out. That I guess that's my point. So you can think, Eric, you sound like a crazy guy, and and maybe I am. What do you? But how do you respond to that? I mean, he's seventy-seven, right? So saying he's not as sharp as he was eight years ago. I mean, I I think I think that's for sure. There there are definitely sharp seventy-seven-year-olds out there. So mm-hmm. don't think uh, uh, if you're listening to us and you're seventy-seven, I'm not not commenting about you. But <laughs> right. I think we I think we have seen a, a change in in Biden. 
mm-hmm. uh, over the years. Although uh, I have I've said that to other people that are really um, pro Biden, and they've said, "Well, he kind of always did this," and I, mm-hmm. I he he's known for making his gaps. It just seems like a little mm-hmm. bit more now. But what you mentioned about the um, next election too is just very interesting. Yeah, go, thinking in twenty twenty four because. Uh, I've read some things and I, I need to do some more digging on this, but I've read some things where, where he said, well, if his health declines, he won't, he won't run. And I've read some other things saying, well, is, is Biden picking the next presidential candidate in his VP selection? You know, just the thought being he doesn't run and that person does. So that's definitely a possibility. Uh, how we got on this topic though, with student loan, uh, forgiveness, I just still don't see that happening. Like there's, there's so much student debt out there. We just put all this money out as a country, uh, with the pandemic, uh, which I'm making both points with this, right. Which in one extreme says, how can we pay for the student debt? But the other extreme is, well, if we could print all this money for a, can't we print all this money for B? So I feel like I'm making both arguments. I, um, I don't know. I guess I'm just really not a believer that they can get this through. But if you've got a fully democratic government, they can pretty much get anything through. Yeah. I think your point there about the fact that here we just spent at least four trillion. (laughs) And I think it's, I think it's, you know, pushing higher. Um, when we spend that much money that quickly, what, what does that do? I think it desensitizes people entirely to those numbers. And so, yeah, if we could do that, why can't we just, you know, lob another trillion here, trillion there, five trillion here? I mean, it's like, what does it, what does it matter? It doesn't look like it's affecting anything. So let's just do it and let's, let's be nice. And, um, well, I, that, I don't know if that's the, I, that's reductionistic, but let's, let's do that and un, unburden an entire generation with an enormous obstacle to their participating more fully as consumers because they're so laden down with this indebtedness. Uh, and that, that then we're getting into a whole nother topic potentially about how much does that help? And so what's where's the money used is just a, uh, that's Pandora's box mm-hmm. <laughs> right there. Yeah. So we've gone through a lot of potential areas and a potential ef- effects of Biden winning. What we didn't touch on that Eric, you had queued up was, was a uh, historical presidential election. Right. Uh, uh, and how, how you can look at just the historical implications of the election. So I think we'll save that for, for next time. Do either of you ha- have anything to add on either sectors to look into, to avoid or any potential uh, impacts of, Biden specifically winning that you see? Um, I'm all set, Roshan, but I'm excited to discuss this topic further and hear what Eric has to say on that um, data that he gathered in another episode. Yeah, for our listeners, Eric was getting some charts up that we got a little bit of a preview of last time that I think will be really interesting. Hopefully, we can share those charts online as well as the the commentary. Eric, do you have anything else to to add? No, I don't. But I guess, well, maybe one thing, and that is, is today, I guess it's, we've probably drifted more deeply, waded more deeply into the waters of politics than we have really done before. So, you know, I think what we really just want to come back to the main subject, all of these sorts of musings in the final analysis, what we're trying to do is to help our listeners think through 
or have some sort of framework for thinking through what might follow a, a, a full sweep to the Democratic Party or for that matter, you know, some other form of divided government or for that matter, although it seems like the most remote possibility of all, a full sweep to the Republican side. That that seems to me inconceivable, but I, at least, you know, we don't want to acknowledge that it's a theoretical possibility. So but but our intent here is to help you make better decisions about your portfolio and hopefully have you, uh, if you're looking for help in some way or another, and you'd like to think these things through with respect specifically to your own portfolio, feel free to pick up the phone, send us an email where our contact information is, is available in the show notes. And um, we'll, we'd be happy to have that conversation with you. Yes, uh, we would definitely be happy to happy to help. And as Eric said, these are ideas and areas to potentially look into in the event that uh, Biden wins, but uh, there is definitely a possibility that that doesn't happen or there is not a full a full shift. It's just what the odds and the polls are telling us. But if you remember the last election, uh, I'm no longer a believer in any of these polls. <laughs> so so they could be they could be meaningless. Hopefully, at the very least, this was an entertaining hour for you. If it, if the elections go a different way and the polls are all all wrong, so you won't think of it as a complete waste of time. Uh, but. Thank you for joining us once again. To all the listeners out there, as we always say, please give us five stars, tell your friends, uh, send our send the link out, and ask us questions because today's episode in particular was driven by the questions that we've, we've been getting as far as how to position a portfolio if there is a, uh, is a change at, at, at the presidential level in the United States. Uh, thank you again, and we look forward to speaking to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Show. If you found this show helpful, gained knowledge, or enjoyed the time you spent with Roshan, Eric, and Adrian, tell your friends and leave us a five-star review. This will help others discover the show. To access our show notes, download any of the tools mentioned in today's podcast, or to ask us a question, go to retirewithroshan.com. That's retire with Roshan. R-O-S-H-A-N dot com. All opinions expressed by podcast hosts and guests are solely their own. While based on information they believe is reliable, neither Arate Wealth nor its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, nor do their opinions reflect the opinion of Arate Wealth. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and should not be regarded as specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. Finally, our music is The Chance by Jason Shaw and Audionautics. It's part of the YouTube audio library and it's licensed under a Creative Commons license. Thank you for listening. Thank you.